What if you could simply trust all information on the internet? My name is Sebastian and I'm on a mission to build a trusted web for all of us on planet Earth. An internet where my parents, possibly my future kids and my own generation can find truth and feel safe. Because to save the world, we need to fix the internet. In the Trusted Web podcast, I embark on a journey with you, my listener, and thought leaders to explore what needs to get done. With this special thing called blockchain timestamps, all content you consume will be transparent and accountable. Welcome to the new default on the internet. Thank you for being part of this journey and let's build the Trusted Web together. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Nolan Higdon. He's an author and university lecturer of history and media studies at the California State University, East Bay. And Higdon's areas of concentration include youth culture, news media history, and critical media literacy. Very important stuff. He sits on the boards of the Action Coalition for Media Education and the Northwest Alliance for Alternative Media and Education. And his most recent publications uh, include, firstly, The Anatomy of Fake News from the University of California Press 2020 and The United States of Distraction, together with Mickey Huff from the City Light Publishers. Nolan, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me. This is cool. Yeah, let's dive right into it. What's the state of fake news today? <laughs> um, well, the, the, you know, the, the state of fake news is um, it, it continues to be produced and perpetuated as it has through, through most of human history. Uh, the, the, big, the big difference, of course, has to be uh, the advent of the Internet and platform like social media platforms um, have been somewhat of a game changer. Because uh, previously, you know, fake news producers had to design content that they believed would appeal to a wide audience. Um, now, thanks to data collection, which allows things like psychographic profiling, uh, you're able to create content that is targeted at individuals um, based on some, you know, algorithmic knowledge of that individual. And that's been a big, big game changer because now we are uh, increasingly locked into information like silos, and um, they reinforce a lot of these false beliefs. And we can really insulate ourselves from having to deal with uh, evidence or, or truths that may challenge the fake news. So that's kind of where we're at in uh, the 21st century. And uh, silos, can you unpack that a bit? What, what, what are the silos or how would you describe that? Yeah, for, for most of, um, at least in the United States, for most of U.S. history, we had uh, media outlets that tried to appeal to a large audience. And so, you know, the idea was that you would have, you know, the, the radical teenager watching the same news broadcast with grandpa and there'd be something for all of you, right? Um, in, in, the, in the 21st century, though, um, our, our, even our legacy news media outlets, they, they change their business model and they now try and capture a, a specific demographic. And so if you lean left, they try and preach to the choir. If you're a lefty, preach to the choir if you're, you're a right winger. Um, and then online in digital spaces, you make decisions yourself on what information you see. And then the platform also makes decisions on what information you see. The platform tries to give you the information that you like, not necessarily the information you need. And studies show that we also go for the information we like, not necessarily the information we need. 
And um, as a result, we can insulate ourselves from having to deal with any information that challenges what we believe. And the studies are pretty clear that audiences like to be confirmed in their views and they like to treat the other views or, or other side, quote unquote, as a villain. And so um, there used to be a gentleman here in the, in the States named Eric Bischoff who, who ran a uh, wrestling corporation called World Championship Wrestling. And he said essentially what, what legacy media is, is doing today is what he used to do in the wrestling industry, which is you get audiences, you preach them and tell them they're like, you know, on the good, good side and the good guy is going to defeat the bad guy, which is like the other political party or parties. And uh, it's an, like uh, a series of, of episodes that never ends. It's like a soap opera. People keep tuning in to hear how great they are and how horrible the other side is. So in fact, we created the internet we wanted as consumers. <laughs> is that what you learned? Yeah, you know, consumers, consumers' data is responsible. I think it's also um, very important to note, though, that uh, social media, you know, we, we can debate whether or not social media is social, but it, it doesn't have to be designed in this way. This was um, a decision that was made, a business model of how to design this content, um, that they were going to um, use it as a way to take data, to sell information to advertisers. So when people say like the internet is the problem, the internet could be anything. We've allowed, you know, companies to capture these spaces and design it this way. And this is how we use it. But there's many more possibilities beyond the internet as we know it. You wrote a book, The Anatomy of Fake News. What made you decide, what were your drivers uh, for writing that book? Yeah, well, actually, I had this idea um, about 10 years ago to write this book um, on uh, false information that's presented as news. And at the time I was shopping around um, to be a doctoral student and I couldn't find any faculty member who would um, sign off on it. They, they didn't get the concept of like false information appearing in, as news. Um, one of the you know only benefits of the uh, Trump administration was he popularized uh, this fake news epithet. And all of a sudden people were talking about this thing that I had wanted to, to write about. Um, but one of the things that really frustrated me was the way people were talking about it. Fake news all of a sudden became like only a right wing problem. It was only created by the Russians. Um, you know, it only was a 2016 issue. And I knew from my studies in history that that was just false. And if we were really going to deal with the problem of fake news, we needed a more comprehensive understanding of its history, the different producers, the different purposes, the different forms. And so I set out to write this book to tell that story and also to give people a guide of what they can do on an individual level uh, to make themselves less susceptible to fake news. And um, al along the way of writing the book, what surprised you the most? Um, I, th I think what um, really kind of su surprised me, I guess, the most um, was the, the connection between data collection on the internet and, and weaponization of fake news hadn't really been studied. Uh, I was surprised at that when I went through the, the research. A lot of people had started to look in the last five or so years about um, data collection and, and how it's used to, to shape our information online. But very few people had made the connection between that and fake news. And so being able to make that connection, I think, was, was really powerful for folks. Diving into the problem, you know so much about anatomy. Is it ever possible to solve this problem and how? What, what did you learn along the way? Yeah, I think one of the big mistakes that, that people make when they talk about the quote-unquote fake news problem is that they assume that we're going to get rid of fake news. And if that's your solution, it's never going to happen. 
Um, you know, this has been going on for centuries and, and it always will. There, information, sometimes some of this fake news is actually by accident. You know, people misreport or, or misstate and it, or it's misinterpreted. So it, it's never going to go away. So that's your goal. You're going to fail. Um, what I try and talk about in, in the book is about how we can um, better prepare ourselves on an individual level to make determinations about the veracity of content. And this has to do with, with teaching critical thinking, um, having institutions of journalism that actually give us a reason to have faith in them and repeatedly report accurately. Those are the kind of steps you can take to, to defeat the fake news problem. But if you're just simply gonna try and censor people or outlaw information or um, have this goal that you're gonna delete all fake news, you're really, a, it's a fool's errand at that point. And what is so for, one of the things is education of the end user on the on all the levels what are the stakeholders and what do all of them need to do <laughs> yeah from a you know from an educational um for educators i think you know we need to get serious about critical thinking and media literacy in the classroom um critical media literacy if you will and that is that um we shouldn't look at media as kind of like passive content that just entertains or doesn't have a message all media have messages um, we should treat them as seriously as we treat traditional like textbooks in the classroom. Um, this is how people are communicating. This is how our students are communicating. Teaching them about how to like deconstruct this stuff and take it seriously is, is, a, is a really important step. Uh, I think journalism um, in the United States really needs to have a come to Jesus moment. Um, as much as it's fun to blame Donald Trump for the fake news epithet, it wouldn't have worked if there was faith in news media and there would have been faith in news media if you didn't have like cataclysmic failures like the Iraq war or the post 2008 recession coverage. Um, so journalists in America need to, to look in the mirror um, and they need to figure out uh, a way to, to build faith in these institutions. Um, one of the issues we're struggling with in the States is that uh, journalists is fr frankly not profitable. Um, there's, there's not a big market for it. And so, you know, I think this gets into your, your level of um, stakeholders. I think policymakers need to really understand that we have to reframe our nation uh, toward democracy. And that may mean like subsidizing the press, um, that the press is a pillar of democracy. And then closely related, I do think that um, po policymakers need to uh, take back um, their, their democratic responsibilities. Um, we, we can't let or wait on big tech to make decisions for us. One, um, they don't have the capacity to do the things they say they're gonna do. Um, and number two, uh, we really should be deciding some of these things democratically. So if you wanna get rid of Donald Trump's Twitter account or you wanna remove some content, we should decide that democratically. We shouldn't ask the tech overlords to do it for us. I think we get to do a dangerous space when we do that. And quite frankly, these folks' commitment to democracy is suspect, right? They sure they got rid of Donald Trump's Twitter account after profiting from it for four years. You know, Facebook was take, <laughs> Facebook was taking millions of dollars from his campaigns. Um, and then they're also working with dictators around the world and covering up genocides online. Um, so it's not like these are like great stellar people um, upholding democracy. And I would rather see us make those decisions through a democratic decision making than, than appeal to like these tech robber barons. What we work on at the Trusted Web is making, uh, making sure that 
information that matters is timestamped, that there's an open source way, in, in this case, we use blockchain technology to, to bring transparency and accountability to information. And if all information is transparent and accountable, that's not always in favor of the business models of big tech. So partially in search engines, for example, it is it's a higher quality result when it's transparent and accountable, but business model, especially in social media, it's it's hard. Uh, what's the um, the thing that policymakers should should do? Is there kind of a roadmap you have in mind? Yeah, well, I think I mean to to your what you're talking about there with like timestamp and, and transparency um, affecting the business model is where is where we get to a fork in the road. Do do we want to go toward a transparent model of information that strengthens our democracy? Or do we want to go toward one that values the market and enriching the tech lords? I mean, I think that that's kind of the critical question that, that policymakers have to ask at this point. Um, and, you know, it's also worth noting that, especially here in the States, since the, the so-called, uh, you know, Reagan revolution or the wave of neoliberalism um, that him and him and Thatcher sort of wrought upon um, the Western world, there was always folks who were, who were saying like, look, this is affecting democracy. We can't solely focus on the market. Um, and now with the events that just happened at our capital, and um, it, it's all sort of come to fruition. And you can see that, you know, the dismantling of um, journalism or the lack of faith in journalism, the lack of faith, faith in policymakers, um, the turning to, to tech overlords. So I would, I would tell policymakers, as far as that roadmap goes, is make decisions based on their effect on democracy, not their effect on the market. Um, I, I, think, I think that's sort of a, a guiding principle that could help us a lot. And this, this you know, is also our educational institutions. You know, we, we emphasize so much in American education on you know, job training, go to college, get a job. You know, we should really be saying, go to school so you can participate in our democracy. Yeah, that that's you know that's so I think those kinds of connections are, are what I would suggest to policymakers. And is there, for example, a, a role for advertisers? We saw with the the Black Lives Matter case, for example, the Stop Hate for Profit campaign was there, uh, a kind of a boycott for getting change in the social media platforms. Is there a role for advertisers in the uh, building a more trustworthy internet? There could be, um, you know, if advertisers are actually, you know, trying to perpetuate truth and, and hold up values of social justice. But I mean, a lot of a lot of what happened in, in the summer, uh, quite frankly, was, you know, virtue signaling or even woke washing where you had um, corporations like Amazon had a Black Lives Matter banner. But at the same time, uh, they were surveilling their workforce and running out a black man who was trying to create a union um, for their company. So if, if what they're if what they're doing is just kind of appealing to those you know, virtues without actually um, considering structural change, then no, there's not really a role for them. They're part of the problem, not the solution. Yeah, clear. <laughs> and what would you, uh, for education in the classroom, uh, you, you're doing a lot of things in education. What should be educated there in a few bullet points? Yeah, I think, well, it, so in the most like umbrella sense of the, the question, um, educators should be teaching folks um, how to think, not what to think. So what are the steps you can take when you're, when you're um, analyzing content? And that means don't give them a list. To me, it's really McCarthyite to give students a list of good outlets versus bad outlets. Um, you know, instead, teach folks to ask like uh, certain questions about content and reframe themselves. So I always ask students like, 
hey, do you want to be an informed citizen or do you want to be a fake news disseminator? Because if you're just reading headlines and sharing, you're part of the problem, not the solution. Um, and then when you look at content, who is the publisher? Like what company published it? What's their history? Who's the journalist? What's their history? What's their conflicts of interest? When you look at the article, what are the sources in the article? Are they transparently sourced? Be very skeptical or cynical of um, uh, anonymous sources. Um, and then are they actually a journalistic institution? You know, Facebook is not a news outlet and journalist outlets tend to have like a code of ethics and they tend to have editors. And look, I, I know as a writer, um, we all hate editors, but we all need editors. Editors protect us from ourselves. <laughs> so, you know, valuing those, those kinds of things. Um, so I think those kinds of deep, deep questions um, can be helpful. And then you can get even a layer deeper and ask, Who's treated as newsworthy? Uh, which identities and viewpoints are included? What identities and viewpoints are not? Um, you know, be skeptical if it's all kind of like wealthy, upper class, white men who are part of like the Washington establishment. Um, you know, you should get some, you know, quote unquote person on the streets and, and stuff like that perspective in there as well. So I think when, when you, and you know, I know this from teaching for almost 10 years now, when you give students those tools, I mean, they take them and they really become hypercritical of everything they, they come in contact with. And that's what you want. I mean, and they, you know, agree and disagree with me on, on my political perspectives, but that's irrelevant. Well, the one thing that they definitely take away is they have the ability to decide fact from fiction on their own. They don't need a tech overlord, government censorship, or some list from an educator. They, they figure it out on their own. So working on a more educated new generation of media consumers, the problem of fake news, from your perspective, from all you've seen, what do you expect for the coming years? Will it uh, get better and better or will it get worse before? How do you see it evolve over the coming, let's say, uh, years and decades? Yeah, well if, well, if history is any indication, um, fake news uh, will continue to get more sophisticated. It always does. Um, you know, I know some people in Silicon Valley are particularly concerned about deep fakes, uh, the creation of these videos uh, that look real um, and are quite convincing, but are actually false. And I think that's going to be a, a game changer moving forward. Um, but I'm also, I, I'm also, uh, you know, very concerned about the rhetoric of censorship in the United States right now. Yeah, we're just, we're recording halfway January. It's a super yeah. interesting time for this. Yeah. And, um, you, you know, the, the liberal leaning aspects of the United States are championing this big tech censorship of, of right wingers. And I, I'm no advocate of right wing fake news, but I, I do know, you know, history and, and history shows us there's a so-called Streisand effect where when you censor content, you make it more popular. And so I worry by using censorship as a, as a tool, which is ineffective and problematic on its own you'll create new silos of fake news right-wing consumers who are more radical because they feel like they've been sort of kicked out of mainstream discourse by these tech censors. And then you'll also have these sort of um, left-leaning left <laughs> news users who will, I think, get a little lazy in looking at content and kind of just trust that if it's on Facebook, now that Facebook is censoring, it's true. And we may actually make the problem worse. So I'm a little... Um, I have kind of a dark image of the years ahead uh, when it comes to, to fake news, um, unless we see some major changes at the uh, policy level and uh, education level. So policy and education first and big tech should be in way forced or, yeah, they, they, policymakers and bottom up by the educated generation, that are the two major forces, you say? 
Yeah. Um, and we need to stop treating big tech like it, it has to be the way it is. Um, we, and I mean, we as a, a democratic body allowed big tech to be what it is. I mean, the United States was a, you know, behind the, the creation of the internet. It passed section 230. Um, it's created these contracts after 9-11 with tech companies to, to collect data. So we made this industry what it is. Um, and so I, we have a say in making it what we want it to be to serve our democracy as well. Yeah. Who will lead in, in fixing this in policy making? Will it be US or <laughs> what do you expect? Uh, well, I mean, Europe has taken uh, much bigger steps in the United States in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. Um, I know, you know, there's some of those like right to be erased and, and um, transparent data laws and things like that. Um, one of the problems that the United States has is that um, we have a two-party system. Uh, the Republicans are clearly public enemy number one of Silicon Valley now. And the Democrats uh, are, you know, they have a revolving door between the party and Silicon Valley. And um, that's become a major problem. Like Chuck Schumer's daughter worked at Facebook and a lot of the Obama administration went into to, to big tech and big tech's a big donor to the Democrats. So this is kind of a movement without a party at this point in the United States. And we'll, we'll, we'll see. Uh, we'll see where it goes. And is there hope? Is there, for example, a year you have in mind in uh, the end of uh, this decade, for example, where the Internet will be a trusted, trustworthy place? Or how do you see that? Uh, you know, it's 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 tough to say. You only you know, you, you only know there's been like a change in consciousness when it when it breaks through the surface. Um, you know, there, there are some signs that maybe there is a, a change in consciousness occurring, uh, you know, so who knows? I mean, I, I'm optimistic, though, with this this younger generation kind of what they've seen, I think, will make them more skeptical to kind of buying into the uh, positive image of, of big tech. Um, so I, I have um, some optimism about what we can accomplish. Perfect. Uh, yeah, that's it for the show. Uh, Nolan, uh, thanks so much for firstly, all the important work you do and the book you wrote. And secondly, for coming to the Trusted Web podcast, where can people find your work? Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm on Twitter um, at Nolan underscore Higdon until they censor me. Um, or you can uh, find some of my work at uh, projectcensored.org. Let's build the trusted web together. That was Dr. Nolan Higdon. And lastly, I'd love to invite you to go to thetrustedweb.org slash podcast. There you will find our report on the state of misinformation because we surveyed thousands of participants across the globe to better understand the impact misinformation has on their lives and how they view the problem. There are incredible findings that surprise us all. And furthermore, you'll find uh, the other episodes and education and use cases for building a trusted web. It's all available there and, of course, for free. TheTrustedWeb.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening and therefore being part of the Trusted Web journey. And let's build the Trusted Web together. <laughs>